Jaron in the prayer time, and he's talking about keeping it simple. And a few months ago, the Lord just told me, talked to me about, he said, I want you to protect your innocence. And um, uh, that doesn't have much to do with what we're talking about tonight. Well, maybe it does, but not that I know of. But let me know that it is, it really is about keeping a, a simple relationship with Jesus and not getting it so complex. You ever get to seasons in your life or times in your life where life seems so complicated and you just have to get back down to what Eric was sharing tonight where it's like, um, I know this, I used to be blind, now I see. I used to be broken, now I'm not. You know, I used to be depressed and now I'm not discouraged. I used to be sick and now I'm well. And, and sometimes you just have to go back to those places where Jesus touched you and make memorials out of them. And, uh, the other thing that was happening tonight that I thought was really uh, it struck me as profound is is uh, is um, Brad and Sarah were were they're, all the paintings are awesome. Brad and Sarah were painting that one painting together, and, and I was thinking about that how that was such a sign of the way the co- that the Lord co-labors with us. And um, I don't know about you know Brad and Sarah, but if Kathy and I were painting that right now, we'd still be arguing over what color the sky should be. And she'd be painting, and I'd be painting over it. I'm like, no, no, no. That's probably true, actually. It takes her a while to know I'm right about stuff. That part isn't true. She's she's pretty quick at it. Um, On that note, we should probably pray. Some for me and some for you. You know, before we do, I just had this really strange thing when I was laying on the floor and we were worshiping. I, don't, I really don't know what it means, but um, when we, when we, uh, my, I took my sons and we did a men's retreat in Oklahoma, and the pastor was a bull rider, and his head, um, his head uh, elder was the world champion bull rider, in 1998 or. 2000 or something, and I found out that they they all had big, these big belt buckles. You know, there was about 70 or 80 men, and I said, man, I was jokingly said, I'm going to get me one of those belt buckles, and they said, you can't do that. You'd be like a hypocrite. I said, why? And they said, you win. You win those belt buckles. Like true cowboys, those belt buckles are their trophy. That's why they tuck their shirt in. Notice that? Even if a cowboy's fat, he tucks his shirt in because he's got a trophy right there. (laughs) Bill's all. Okay. I know this having a little challenge today. But this is the uh, this is the word I had on when I was laying on the floor as weirdest word. I felt like the, uh, there's someone in the room that, um, that, that your belt, your, I mean specifically, not, this isn't like a metaphor, like your belt is, means something special to you. And I, don't, that's, I haven't thought of this since, since I, we did that retreat four years ago. Is, is there anyone in the room that your belt means something special to you? Would you stand up? Oh, that's you? That's cool. That's good. It's, and you too? Okay, well, one of you this word's right for. <laughs> Kidding. Stay standing, please. I mean it sincerely. I was just I was joking about that part. But um, 
let me say this. Uh, uh, for you, the, um, the Lord showed me that the, the, um, the, the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn, growing lighter and lighter till the perfect day. And I feel like the Lord has um, put a spirit of revelation on you, and things are beginning to open up for you. And um, this, this belt in your life uh, is the belt of truth, and nothing's going to begin to um, pull at you and pull you into a new dimension. I feel like the Lord is pulling you into a new dimension. And it's, uh, I, specifically, I saw the Lord opening the doors um, to, uh, to this, the, this whole business realm. I felt like the Lord's opening the business realm to you and uh, the financial realm to you. And the Lord was going to guide you, even guide um, your financial steps. I felt like um, that even in the middle of this economic crisis, that there's going to be many people... Who, are, uh, who the Lord prospers. And you're one of those people that the Lord's going to prosper and He's going to give you wisdom and insight. And it's going to be a little bit Joseph in the sense that Joseph had a strategy for, um, for, uh, for a famine that was coming. And I feel like the Lord's going to give you a strategy for making money. In fact, uh, Moses wrote in the book of Deuteronomy that the Lord's going to give you power. It is the Lord who gives you power to make wealth. And, and, um, and so I feel like the Lord's going to pull you into wealth it's going to come through revelation and not through uh, your intellect, not through your um, training. I don't even know if you've ever had any interest in business, but the Lord's going to begin to open the doors of business to you. And you're going to see in the next three or four or five months, the doors are going to be open, and the Lord's going to give you wisdom and understanding, and the word of knowledge are going to guide you into what investments to make, um, what things to do. And, and it's all about the, the belt of truth that's around your waist. And you, the Lord gave me a word for you that the Lord is kissing you into a new dimension. I started to say it this morning in prayer, but the Lord is kissing you into a new dimension. And I guess it was uh, not Cinderella, but uh, Sleeping Beauty who got woken up through a kiss. And, um, and the Lord says, awake, awake, sleeper. And uh, the Lord is waking you from a sleep, not uh, like you were doing something wrong or anything. It's like sleep isn't a bad thing. It's the Lord's ordained it. But the Lord is kissing you awake into a new season and it's, um, it's a season of great joy, it's a season of great favor, and it's a season of great, um, it's a season of great influence. And um, the, something's going to shift, like I saw you, um, you were like running against the wind, and the, the wind changed, and the, um, what, you know, what the Lord used to build, you know, when you're running against the wind, you're building uh, more muscle, all those things. And now the, that's going to work for you as the Lord reverses the wind and he puts the wind at your back. And uh, the Lord's going to um, give you favor with your family. There's restoration coming in um, lots of dimensions with family and family members and friends and uh, in strained relationships with a very close uh, daughter, young person in your life. And the Lord's restoring that. And um, you're going to sit in your house uh, next year at this time and you're going, this is going to be your testimony. Like Eric had us uh, turn to someone tonight and say, name one thing that's, that, you, that you know, you're blind now. You see, you'll be sitting in your, in your front room and you'll remember these words and you'll remember that the Lord did this for you this year, that he restored your fortunes, that he took what the worm has eaten, and most importantly, he restored a very important relationship and relationships in your life. And um, that all right? All right. That's good. Um, I want to talk to you about standing on the, at the threshold of history. And um, I, I um, shared pieces of this in different places, and I, I felt like I was supposed to just do this again tonight. 
uh, and kind of take it to some different places. I feel like, um, first of all, um, the Lord gave me a, a prophetic word. I was trying to see uh, what the date was, but it was uh, somewhere around, it was around the, the 1st of uh, April. Um, he gave me this prophetic word in the middle of the night, and he told me that, um, he told me that we were, uh, first of all, he, t- he shared with me about history, how many people in history had, had um, planted churches, and that those churches had become a catalyst for a movement. And so they planted churches, and the churches were, were healthy and growing, and, and it seemed like almost they became a catalyst, like a tipping point for something historic when, and, and, and it seemed like suddenly, and I, I don't know how often things af- look, uh, you know, are actually suddenlies. Um, I think oftentimes we see like David killing Goliath and we think David's suddenly famous and we don't realize that behind that fame of that, of that, that one, that, you know, that, sudden, that tipping point, that place where David stands up and challenges Goliath is many years of David in the wilderness with sheep, you know, practicing his sling if you understand what I'm getting at. But I, um, I feel like we're on this threshold, and, and um, in, in, oh, I started to tell you about that there's churches, there's whole churches, and I say church, I'm not talking about like a church, but a, a, a movement of churches. They begin to develop and plant churches, and it's seemingly suddenly that those churches become a movement. And the movement begins to take on a life of its own, if you will. It begins to... It, it, it's, like, it's like giving birth to, to somebody that you nurture and you cherish and you love them, and then suddenly they become a famous person. You know, like some of these NFL players and NBA players and, and baseball players, you know, they, you know, they grow up in poor homes. How many times do you see documentaries on some of these football players? They come out of totally dirt, poor homes, and they show them oftentimes during the playoffs they'll, they'll do a little documentary on some of, the, some of the famous players and how they came out of Harlem or they came out of Watts or they came out of these terrible places and they grew up with nothing and they'll tell their story. Then suddenly, you know, they, they, they went from college to the NFL and they signed this $100 million deal. And, and you know, and it'll show, you know, the first thing I remember watching a documentary on one of the players this last year, I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was, but he, he said, the first thing I did when I got my signing bonus is I bought my mother a house. And, and, the, and the whole, and it's like mom, mom poured into this son, you know, in this particular case, I remember, I wish I could remember who the player was, but his father, he never knew his father, grew up in total poverty, they lived in, I forget what neighborhood, but it was in some place, I think in, in the, in the um, ghettos of, of Chicago, and you know, his mother had, they had like five or six, uh, all boys, if I remember the story correctly, his mother worked two jobs to put him through college and put the kids through college. And so she poured into him and poured into the kids. And suddenly he gets an NFL contract. And he's like this, you know, I, I think he was like the MVP of, of one, one year. And it's just like, you know, he just, this fame just overtook him. And he began to, you know, pour back into his family. You know, you know what I'm getting at? And there, there's a suddenly... And, and what mom gave birth to, she gave birth to this son who she defined, you know, this was, this was little Johnny. This is my son, if you can follow my metaphor. This is my son, Johnny. And this is, oh, this is Mary's son, Johnny. 
This is, uh, this, is, this, is, this is Henry's son, Johnny. And, and it grew up, you grow up that you're somebody's son. Like your identity is in the fact that you are somebody's son. And then something happens and suddenly, like these NFL players, suddenly they, they, they catch a famous pass and they become a, a great player. And suddenly no longer is the, fam- or is the family defining the NFL player, but the NFL player is now defining the family. <laughs> It, like, nobody wants to talk to the family because of their last name, because of their achievements. They want to interview the family because of the son. And the son begins to re-identify the family. Maybe the family has all these attributes that they, that they have. Maybe there's artists and there's singers. And all, but but this, this person who, who won the $100 million NFL contract, maybe great quarterback or you, am I making any sense right now? Everybody wants to talk to the family, even though the family has all these attributes. It's this attribute that's in this one son that is redefining the family. Do you know what I'm getting at? And that family begins to be redefined. Now, when I say redefined, I don't mean redefined like the family changes. I just mean the world begins to view the family from a totally different perspective. The family is still the family. The family's always been. But the family gets redefined by the NFL player, the NBA player. Are you with me? And I was thinking about, you know, the shack, and I, I shared a little bit this morning in first service, but the book, The Shack, we had the writer here, Paul Young. How many of you got to be a part of that, or you got to hear it on the podcast or the webcast? Amazing, man. But um, I was meeting with his daughter. We had uh, some time together. We had lunch together, all of us together, Bill and I, and... Paul and our families, some of our families, and we were sharing, and I interviewed him privately for our, for our uh, websites, and we were just interacting, and his daughter said, you know, my dad, she said, you know, all the way through all my years growing up, I knew nobody liked my dad, but I didn't know why, and he shared his personal testimony that he was sexually abused, and that he was a, a, a abuser, and just, you know, this whole, cra- and the shack is actually... It's a fiction book, but it's really a metaphor about his life. And the shack is his life. And he's talking about what happens when God comes in and rebuilds the shack. And he talks about this 11-year journey. Well, in the midst of this 11-year journey, he writes this book. At the end of his 11-year coming out of dysfunction, he writes this book. And they're, they're really broke. They're in a 900-square-foot house. I think they have six kids. They're in this little tiny house. They have no money. When he wrote The Shack, he sent the manuscript to 26 um, publishers. Every publisher turned the book down. Nobody would publish it. And And he wrote it for his children anyway. In fact, it was just his friends who said, you need to get this published. He's like, no one wants to publish this. So his friends actually were the ones who sent the manuscript to 26 publishers. They said, this is a great book. Someone's going to publish it. Well, nobody did. And it turns out his friends um, started a publishing company just to publish his book. But he had no money, so he went to, I think, like Kinko's or something, and they printed 15 copies of it, and he gave them away for Christmas to his children because he wrote the book for, for his children. And then there was a suddenly, and that suddenly happened, and, six, and he sold 6.5 million books so far in English alone, 2 million in Portuguese. Now, I don't know if you understand what that, what that means in a Christian author writing a book that sells a million copies. Let me say this. 
the average, the average uh, book sells 5,000 copies. A Christian book, if it sells 20 or 25,000 copies, considered by most publishers a bestseller. If you write a book that sells 100,000 copies, that's amazing. You, get, you understand the standard? He sold 6.5 million copies. He's not Joe Olstein. He doesn't have a TV show or Rick, Rick Warren. Those are great men, by the way. I, I'm simply saying, it, he's, this is a God thing. Yeah. I'm sitting with him. I'm interviewing him. And, you know, I know a little bit about business and marketing. I was in business for 20 years. And I'm like, okay, so what's the backstory? Because I'm like, you know, there's, there's usually people who go, well, that was a miracle. You know, I'm not talking about a body thing, but in business. And I'm like, there's a backstory. Like, something happened. I go, what's the back, like, what really happened? Like, what did you guys do? You have some, like, God gave you some wisdom on how to, he goes, no, not really. And I'm like, nah, you know me. I'm like, no, nah, nah, I'm not taking that for an answer. And he's like, you know, when we get all done, like, he really, there was nothing that he told me that he did would, that would sell more than twenty five or 30,000 copies. And yet that book sold 6.5, still selling. It's number one, was on the number one New York bestseller list for like, I forget how many weeks, I don't want to exaggerate, many, many weeks in a row, which is just hard to do if you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, it's, I don't know how many times it's been done in the world. I don't know how many times it's been done by somebody who has no network, he's not a pastor, and nobody knows him. That is crazy. And when he was here at the writers' conference, I, I, I loved interacting with him. I thought what he had to share was really awesome for all the writers. And so there was lots of dimensions that I appreciated him, so I don't want to narrow it down to this one. But the, the thing that had the most impact on me is I kept thinking in my heart, this is a prophetic act. Having this man here is a prophetic act. Because in April, the 1st of April, I felt like the Lord said, you're on the threshold, you're on the threshold, of, not me, not me personally, we, we are on the threshold of a historic moment. And when, when Paul, was sharing, Paul Young was sharing his testimony with me privately, I felt the Lord whisper, this is that. And, and, and so I have some things I want to share about that, and some of them I've shared already. But in that context, um, I, I feel like there's some, um, when I say warnings, you know, I'm not a warning guy like, oh, famine's coming. Not those kind of warnings. Um, but I feel, like, I feel like there's adjustments that are, are taking place in our lives. And I feel like there are adjustments that we, can get, to, we get to make by having foresight or they get made for us. And I remember um, years and years ago, I haven't heard Bill teach on this for a long time, at least I haven't been here when he has, but he used to talk about um, canoeing. We used to live in, in, um, in the Alps, of course, so I never canoed much, but um, in canoeing, they talk about positioning yourself for the, um, for the waterfalls. Like, you get position for the waterfalls, and if you don't, that's when you're for the rapids, I mean. You position yourself for the... Not waterfalls, yeah. There are guys that do that, too. Guy just set a record. Did you see it on television? That's crazy, man. I don't even like water. So, anyway. For the rapids. He talked about, that, that he, he talked about when you see the rapids, that you, that you have an opportunity that, that great um, uh, canoers and, and kayakers... 
they, when, they, when they see the rapids ahead, they position their canoe and they look for the place where they can get through without their canoe turning over. And I feel like, I'm, I'm, like whitewater is, is, is fun to people who, who are actually, I mean, they look for it. They're like, ha, ah, whitewater, me, I, no. It's great in a picture. Or when you're driving along, like, oh, that's awesome. Those people are stupid. <laughs> so I, um, but back to my first part, I, there, there has been churches in history that they became a catalyst to a movement. And that movement began, and, they were, and the church defined the movement. And then seemingly suddenly, much like the Shaq or like the NFL player that signs a contract. How many know the NFL player has been playing probably since he was in Pop Warner football? But it's a suddenly in that he finally signs a contract. He's been waiting for this probably since he was a little boy. And he signs a contract and, and his family's history in that moment seems to be suddenly changed. A man writes a book and, and suddenly, the, suddenly, almost you know, overnight... He's, he's a multimillionaire, he's out of poverty, and he's well-liked, and people love him and favor on his, on his life. Are you with me? And it's like, there's, there's, there's times when, when men um, define history, and there's times when history begins to define men. I'm not talking about males, I'm talking about people in general. And, and I think that there's, there's times when the, the church begins to be a catalyst to a movement and begins to define the movement, if you're with me. And then something happens in history. And over and over, and I, I don't want to name events because many of these times, that, you know, there's different people in history that we want to respect them. Uh, and, and we want to make sure that we don't we dishonor them. And we don't, want to, we don't want to put ourselves in a place where we would never do that because we don't know because we've never been there before. But they get to a place where the movement starts to redefine the church. Are you with me? I'm not saying the church changes. I'm simply saying that the way that the world views the church is not the way mama raised him. That suddenly the, the movement begins to redefine the church. Because the movement gets bigger than the church. And there's certain manifestations in that movement. Now, I, you know, I'm not talking about shaking or falling down. It can be that, but it can be anything. It can be a God thing. The God thing. The, the man catches the ball, and, and he's awesome at that. And, and his skill begins to redefine what the family is about. Even though the family hasn't changed, the world doesn't know the family by their art skills or by mama's stew or by any of the things that the family knew the family by. But the only way the family views... The, 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 the NFL player becomes a doorway, if you will, into the family, and they view the family through the perspective of the NFL, even though that's a small portion of what's really happening in the family. Am I making sense? And sometimes what's happened in history is that to, 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 protect, to protect the church's identity, many times in history, the leaders have cut off the movement. They've cut the movement off, and we end up with a, with a fatherless movement and a church that becomes a monument to something that once was. Am I making sense? Now, this isn't a history lesson. I think this is a prophetic declaration. 
In, in April, I wish I would have wrote the date, but the Lord woke me up in the, in the middle of the night and He told me this. He gave me some names of people and He said, they made a decision to cut off the movement to save the, to save the identity of the church. And, he said, and then He said this, and you, Bethel, and when I say Bethel, I'm not just talking about us in this room. I'm talking about the wider, our, our, our whole tribe. You, Bethel, are standing at the threshold of that same historic door. And I'm about to do something that if I told you about it, you wouldn't believe it. Now I'm putting this in my own words. That's not what I wrote. But I'm, I'm, I'm about to do something. And, you know, like the shack, I'm about to do something that is so huge. And the temptation that you have will be to cut off the movement to protect the church. And the Lord said, I don't want you to do that. And in fact, he said this. He said, you have a church, you have a government. You have, to start over. He said, you have a church that has a movement. But he said, something is about to happen. And you're going to be a movement that has a church. And then he said this to me. He said, you have a government that was created to be a church with a movement. And he said, it is inadequate to, to, to govern what I'm about to release in the earth. And he said, I want you to develop a government, not me, us. This is us word. I want you to develop a government that, that's large enough to govern a movement that has a church. And I don't want you to be afraid of, about, of the way I'm about to redefine you. Now, and then he took me to the book of Acts. And I was up in the middle of the night. And I, I you know, the, I love the book of Acts. So, you know, I have... I know this story well, but if I saw it from a totally different perspective. In fact, why don't you turn to Acts 15. I want to just kind of describe to you a little bit about what's happening in Acts 15. But let's just read the first few verses and it, kind of, it will kind of define it for us. Some men came down from Judah and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you can't be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dis, uh, discussion and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through uh, those cities and describing in detail the conversation, the conversion, I'm sorry, of the Gentiles, and, were, and they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. Verse 4, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It's necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law, the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together to take a look into this matter. And after there'd been much, after there'd been much debate, Peter stood up, and he said to them, Brethren, you know in the early days that God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their heart by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor, nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we, have, we are saved through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, in the same way that they are also. And all the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. 
And after they stopped speaking, James answered the brethren and said, Listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with these words, the prophets agree, just as, just as it is written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles, key word, all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from the bold. Verse 19, Therefore it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, or from um, that which is strangled, and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has, um, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas and so on and so forth. I just want to stop for a few minutes and just, just try to understand what's happening. The church is that Jesus spoke and raised up a church with 12 apostles. Those 12 apostles had lots of things um, in common and lots of things not in common, but the one thing they did have in common is they were all Jews. So we have 12 Jewish leaders. When Jesus was rose, rose from the dead, he left 12 Jewish leaders to lead the church. And basically Jesus, with, uh, with just a couple of exceptions, did not preach to Gentiles. He only preached to Jews. Now, we know there are, were a couple of exceptions. But he mostly spoke to Jews. And then he told them, listen, after the resurrection, he said, I want you to go and preach this gospel to Judea, to Jerusalem, and... This is, the, this is the most important part, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Are you with me? Now, how many of you know that there's a lot more Jews in the world than there are Gentiles? No, there are a lot more Gentiles in the world than there are Jews. I was testing you. <laughs> when you paused, I'm like, okay, let's say this differently. Yeah, sorry. There's a lot more Gentiles in the world than there are Jews. So, here's the church. They have the Old Testament, right? They don't have a new... There's no New Testament. Okay, you've got you to get this. There's no New Testament yet. There's no, no New Testament. All they have is the, is the Old Testament. You got me? They've got Jewish custom, 4,000 years of Jewish custom. They've got laws and rules, and they've got prophecies about the future, and about the Messiah, about the end times, uh, about people who will be born. They have all those things. And they start ministering, and they get persecuted. And you know, Philip goes, um, I think it's in the 6th chapter, Philip goes down to Samaria, which is a Gentile city, and he preaches in Samaria, and a revival breaks out. Remember this? And, so the, and, then, and then Cornelius, um, Peter at Cornelius' house, and God falls on them. And then Paul and Silas are having the same kind of um, responses from the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit's falling on Gentiles. Now, this is... This is troubling because these Gentiles, they're not just, um, they're not Americans. I'm trying to, I'm trying to like just give you this mindset. Like we're not talking about that, that, that the Holy Spirit's falling on Americans that kind of have a Judeo-Christian ethic, but, but they, they're not believers. We're talking about the, that's falling on Gentiles who are heathens who don't know a darn thing about the only book that these guys have been raised on. They don't know.
They don't know anything about David and Goliath. They could probably don't know who Abraham is and Sarah and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the book of Genesis. See, these people are pagans. Are you with me? Most of these people are pagans. These are mostly pagan cities that are getting touched by God. There are some exceptions, but most of these people have no Judeo-Christian core value. Are you following me? So they're getting saved and, and Jesus is healing them, and he's delivering them. And the, there's a big problem because these people are not getting healed, saved, and delivered the way that these boys have been taught for 4,000 years. See, these, these guys have an idea of how God moves. It's in, their, it's in the Bible. They don't have this part of the Bible yet. They only have this part. And, and so these people are getting saved, delivered, and healed. The only problem is, is that they don't have any, any Jewish roots. They don't know anything about Judaism. And the, the early church was basically Judaism with Christianity superimposed over it. Are you following me? See, if you, if you think about it, see, James, who's the head apostle in Jerusalem, who stayed back. Am I fading out or... Okay. Am I doing something that caused that? It's, it's in my pocket. Okay. I don't know nothing about technology, but I know that it has days like me. And sometimes it works back there, and sometimes it doesn't, and there's some sort of cycle. Anyway, um, <laughs> sometimes you can bury that sucker in your shoe, and it works fine, and take the same thing the next day, and it doesn't work at all, and you put it right here. So, Whatever. Okay, so I lost my train of thought. Sorry. So, um, so these people are getting saved, but the struggle is, is that they, ha- they don't... So, oh, I know what I was saying. So the church is basically Judaism. If you look at the, uh, the church in the head apostle of all the apostles, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, obviously, because he had a different father, Joseph not you know, being Jesus' real father... And so he's the head apostle at the church of Jerusalem. And when, when, when Paul and Silas and those guys start preaching that circumcision is nothing, that you don't need to be circumcised, you'll notice that he calls Paul back to Jerusalem. And he says, listen, you are upsetting the Jewish church. We said it's okay for the Gentiles to not be circumcised, but your teachings are really disturbing the church because you're making it like you don't keep the law. So put yourself under a vow. All right, so what I'm getting at is that Christianity was basically Judaism with Christianity superimposed over it. For a lot of years. You know, I, I'm not a his, historian, but we're talking about 40, 50, 60 years. And now something powerful happens. The movement... The church becomes this catalyst to the world. And people start receiving Jesus, first by the hundreds, and then by the thousands, and then by the multiple thousands. And then whole cities are getting saved, i.e. like Samaria. Whole Gentile cities. Can you imagine if all this little city we have, if all of Reading one day didn't know the Lord, and you know two weeks later they all know the Lord. It's awesome except for... the. These are not Jewish cities. These are Gentile cities that don't know anything about the Bible. Now, those, that movement becomes so great that the world begins to view the church 
not through the church's core values that it's had for 4,000 years, but through the NFL player who was maybe the alcoholic beating his wife down the road and suddenly went to a meeting and the Holy Spirit fell upon him and the guy's describing what he thinks the church is, but he doesn't know anything about the Bible. Are you, am I making sense? Is he giving an accurate description of the church? No, he, he doesn't know anything about the... He doesn't know... It, no. Is he giving an accurate description about his experience? Yes, but does he know anything about the kingdom? No. But guess who's defining the kingdom? These people who are getting saved, who have... They don't have like... You know, they don't have 10 generations of Judaism. They have brand new... I'm the first believer. And we're not talking about a few of them getting saved in a culture like America. We're talking about multiple millions of them getting saved. And the people, the world knows those people, but they don't know James in Jerusalem. And suddenly the church, the movement starts to redefine the church. Are you following me? And some Pharisees, now these Pharisees are believers, so these are good Pharisees. I know, Pharisee, bad guy in the movie, but these are good converted Pharisees. You got it? So these people, these are Pharisees who love Jesus. They, they come to the meeting, to this big round table, and they're like, hey, these guys, listen, we've got to have a peer movement here. We can't have these people getting saved and not circumcised, and we can't have them not keeping the Sabbath day. We can't have this stuff. And so they start this big debate. And, but here's the real issue. And this is why I'm, I'm bringing it up tonight. The real issue is this. Are we going to let the movement redefine us? Or are we going to cut it off and say, those people, listen, if you don't keep the law, if you don't keep these rules, you're not saved. I mean, some of us are like, no, that couldn't happen. It happens today. We have a whole bunch of people who do that. It's called denominationalism, and it says, here, fit in this box right here. These are people who are saved right here, the people who fit in this box. You don't fit in this box, you're not saved. Well, I have this experience. Listen, your life is not divine by experience. You didn't keep these rules. Did you pray this prayer? What name did you get baptized in exactly? How did they do it? Did you go under? Did you get salted? How did it work? How exactly? Tell me. Now, what was the prayer you prayed? Did you pray this prayer or did you pray that prayer? Are you with me? It's the same old thing. It's just like, did you keep all the rules? If you didn't keep all the rules, how can you expect that you are a Christian? And so these people start to receive Christ and they, and, and, and they begin to redefine the movement. Now, when I say that, it, I, I want to be careful. I do think that the movement... I'm sorry, let's, let's go back. I do think that over a period of time that the church... The, in Jerusalem, made, had a reformation. I think they had a reformation. And I think the book of Romans and Colossians and Galatians, for instance, is Paul writing after the fact. Because Paul's a Pharisee. Paul is a teacher of the law. Are you with me? So what does he do? In fact, oftentimes it's called the Roman road. He's, he is trying to settle the issue how can all these people know God when they didn't keep all these rules? And so in Romans, he begins, listen, he's not, uh, let's see, this, Bob Jones gave us a great word. Um, I don't know if he gave it to us publicly. 
he may have, I don't remember, but privately, um, he, did, he gave us this word. And he said, let's see, I wrote it down. He said that we're going where no one has ever gone before, and we will chart the course as we go. What's, is that right? Oh, privately. He said we're going where no one's ever gone before, and we will chart the course for others to follow. I think that, if I can just broaden that for just a minute, I think that's what Romans, Galatians, and Colossians, for instance, were. I think they went, they were having experiences with God, and Romans, Colossians, and Galatians was charting a, a, a place. He's telling them, this is, where we, this is where we are, and this is how we got there. Circumcision is a... Is a circumcision is... If you receive circumcision, Paul says in Galatians, then faith, grace is of no value to you. And then he begins to say circumcision was really about, um, it's really about, it was a shadow of the real thing to come, and the real thing is the circumcision of the heart. And he begins to say, listen, he who is a Jew, outwardly, God is able to make from stones, he's able to, to create sons. And he begins to say, listen, these things that we learned, all these pages that we hold dear, they're really important, but what they are is a picture of the real thing to come. And he begins to bridge, he begins to build a bridge, not between where they, they are and where they were. He begins to build, he's not, he's not saying, okay, listen, I figured it out, we can go there. He's saying, we went there, now let's figure it out. Because the, these were written like 40, 50, 60 years after the resurrection. He's not looking forward and going, okay, listen guys, I had this revelation. The Gentiles, listen, I think, I think we're supposed to reach out to them because that's not what's happening. The Holy Spirit's falling on them, and after the fact, he's charting a course on how they got there. Are you following me? And I feel like... <laughs> I feel like we're going where we've never gone before. I don't think we have a choice. I think it was Bob who said, you've got a sail and no rudder. Is that Bob Jones? He said, God's put you in a ship with a sail and no rudder. And so we're going where, we're, where we've never gone before. And as we go, we're charting the way so that others can go there. <laughs> the crazy thing is, like, how do you know when you, when you get there, you know? <laughs> I mean, I have lots of questions. My mind just works like, um, like, not, like, there's something, I don't know if there's something wrong with it or if there's something right with it, but there's definitely, I don't know what to say. See, Christopher Columbus, I, I did some, I googled Christopher Columbus. <laughs> That's my education. <laughs> you know the problem with googling something? Like, you know, if you google Christopher Columbus, there's like, you know, four million pages on him, you know, and none of the guys agree on him. And I'm like, I'll just make up what I want to make up, and they can google about me next. Because you, you, know, you, you Google one place and it says, you know, Christopher Columbus discovered that the world was not flat. And, some, and then there's, you know, there's 14 websites that say, no, that's not true. And these, I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm not, 
educated enough to know, but this is what I think. <laughs> I have an opinion about this, and I don't know what I'm talking about. So we're just going to use my version. This will definitely inspire emails. I should just put up on the screen some of the emails I get there. Some of them are so funny. I mean, I won't tell you. Anyway, I won't go there. I've already humbled myself enough tonight. Here's... See, this is one of the... This is what... I think there was a lot... This is my opinion. Not history, not something I learned on Google. This is my opinion. I think that there was a lot of brave explorers that were probably as brave as Christopher Columbus. I think there was a lot of adventurous people in those days. But I think that even though some people say that there was 1,500 years before this, people already began to believe that the world was round, it is true that Christopher Columbus did not believe the world was flat. Whether he was the first or, or if he got involved in a movement, as scientific, I don't know, I really don't know, and I read all those things, and um, like it's more confusing when I get done reading. I read about 300, no, I read about 40 pages, and I'm like, okay, I don't know what, what to believe now. But this is what I think. I think that Christopher Columbus, I think that he didn't discover the new world because he was more adventurous or braver than anyone else. I think he had, I think he discovered new world because he had a new core value that was present in his seamanship. And that is this. Whether all the scientists in the world believed the world was round, I mean, the, the, the fact is, is that most sailors did not believe that the world was round. They believed the world was flat. And they believed that if you, if you sailed to a certain part of the ocean, you would fall off the ocean. That the ocean, you would fall off into some abyss. And Christopher Columbus, and this is, part is true, Christopher Columbus watched ships, and they would sail, he, they would sail and they would disappear. And he said to himself, I've been there before, and I know that's not the end of the world. And so he'd sail out there and look again, and they would sail and disappear. He goes, that's really odd because I've been there before. And he started to think to himself, you know what, whether he was taught that and, and, and he proved it to himself or whatever, he decided that the world is not flat. That the world, I don't know how you, how you can stick to the bottom of a basketball, but somehow it works. That you can actually, that you can actually sail around the world. And so, and so Christopher Columbus, out of a, not out of a necessarily more adventurous spirit, but out of a new core value said, I believe that you could keep sailing and that you won't fall off the end of the world. And he did. And he got people to fund it. I don't think that he... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's another story that's really interesting, but it doesn't mean anything tonight. But here's the point. He actually died penniless, so I hope that's not a point. I don't think he necessarily knew where he was going. I think he just knew why he was going. There was something in him that's, that said, I, I guess what I'm getting at is that his, the, the belief system that most sailors held kept them only going a certain amount of distance from the shore. And what Christopher Columbus carried that most seamen did not carry in those days is a new way of thinking. 
And I want to propose to you that it wasn't bravery or courage. He had that, but lots of them had that. It wasn't a greater sense of adventure. He had that, but lots of men had that. But I want to propose to you that it was a new way of thinking, that a new paradigm, a new worldview that caused him to launch out to find a new world. And he didn't even discover what he thought he was going to discover. That was, God has found us by mistake. Second time or something, you know. And, um, and I think that we're setting sail and not because we're more adventurous than anyone else. And I'm not talking about us person, I'm talking about our tribe. I think we're setting sail not because we're more adventurous. I, I can tell you, I have met b- much bolder people in my life. And I read the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and I'm like, there are people there that I'd, <laughs> I don't think any of us hold a camera. They were sawed in two, I'd be like, yeah, I am allergic to pain. When I sit on an airplane in the, in the exodile, she goes, will you like take the responsibility, the thing that you have to repeat? I say, yes, but I do have to tell you something. She said, what's that? I said, I'm allergic to fire. So if there's a fire, I'll go get help. I may not be the best one to stand here, like burn up while we let people go through the door. I don't know. That would be... I don't know that we're braver than anyone else. I don't know that we're, you know, we have better character than other people. I don't know that those things are, are true. I, I do feel like this. I feel like the Lord has given us a treasure. And that treasure is revelation. And it's not something that we earned. It's not something that we got in seminary. <laughs> Keep going. It, it's, it's something we got by a gift from God. And that core value is saying to us, the world is not flat. You can go where no one's ever gone before because you will not fall off the end and all die. And I feel like... (laughs) I feel like that we stand between um, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, which says, "Bad, bad company corrupts good morals. And Matthew 5.14, which says, You're the light of the world, a city set on a hill. I feel like we stand between these two boundaries. And, every, and people say, the world is flat, and these are the boundaries of your life. And if you pass those boundaries, you're going to die. If you go out into the world, bad company corrupts good morals, and you could die. And, we, and we're caught between Jesus saying, I've set you as a city on a hill, a light in the midst of darkness. Arise, shine, for the light has come. We stand in the midst of this tension of bad company corrupts good morals, and you're the light in the midst of a dark place. Are you with me? There's this tension that lies between us. There's this thing that says, come out. We're stuck between this place that says, um, in Second Corinthians 6.17, Paul quotes this uh, Old Testament, come out and be separate. We, we have this, we, we're caught between the tension of, come out and be separate, and I will bless you. And in Luke chapter, what is it? Luke chapter t- uh, 22, verse 37, says this about Jesus, and he was numbered among transgressors. He was called a wine-bibber. He was called a friend of sinners. Are you following me? I, I don't know if you're feeling what, I, what I'm trying to say. But I feel like we're caught in this tension between come out amongst them, be separate, and he was numbered among transgressors. 
And somehow, somehow we, have to, we have to find a way for our heart to be separated to God and yet for us to be very much a part of darkness. We have to be... Does that make sense? You know, um, I, I, I hope that this is all right that I say it like this. The Bible's more of a documentary than it is a commentary in most places. We read the Bible as a commentary, and the Bible's not always a commentary. It's often a documentary. For instance, we retell the story of Esther to fit our Judeo-Christian American core values. But let me tell you what the book of Esther really is. The book of Esther is not a beauty contest like the Miss America contest or even like the, uh, the American Idol. The, that, those, those things, is, whether you like them or not or you think they're worldly, I mean, we're, this is a whole nother level. This is, this is a king who dumped his woman, his wife he was married to, because she wouldn't dance for him. And then he said, I'm going to get me another woman because I don't like her anymore. And they got this idea to have a beauty contest, but the beauty contest didn't have much like, let's see if you can play or sing or what do you know about, you know, Babylon history. This wasn't like that. It was, this was the ultimate beauty contest was like, let's see how pretty you are and how good you are in bed. Now, the reason we celebrate the story of Esther is because she, she wasn't the second runner up. Think about that. If she was the second runner-up, we wouldn't like the book of Esther at all. What I'm getting at is this, is that it is God, God isn't writing the book of Esther as a commentary on how to live life. He's writing it as a documentary. In other words, he's not saying, listen, if you want to get ahead, you know, what you need to do is like, if you, if you work for General Motors, see if you can sleep with the CEO, see if he'll marry you, and you can deliver... All the General Motors employees from the bankruptcy because you have the Word of God. And you got Mordecai, your uncle, going, good word. You know. what, what I'm getting at is this, is that oftentimes the Bible is not, is not, a, is not, not God's often not writing as a commentary. He's writing as a documentary. He's saying, this is what happened, and this is where I entered into the picture. Are you following me? So the, the book of Acts, is the book of Acts a documentary or a commentary? So we go, oh, this book of Acts is amazing. You know, this is how to have revival. And then we find out like, you know, four years into the revival or three years into the Bible, revival, they're, they're feeding the, the widows and they won't feed the Hinalistic widows because they're prejudiced against them. Are we saying it's okay to be prejudiced against people? Is, is Luke writing like God told us not to feed them? You see what I'm getting at? What I'm getting at is that I, I don't think the book of Acts is written as a commentary. I think it was written as a documentary. And God goes, this is what they did, and here's where I entered into it. Are you with me? And this is what they did, and this is where I entered into it. This is what Esther did, and I'm not justifying that Esther did the right thing by taking away someone else's wife, I mean husband. I'm just saying this is where I entered into it. I can enter into anyone's darkness and there can be a testimony in any place in darkness. Are you following me? I mean, you, you just, just think about, you know, we're talking about, like, think about the Esthers of our day. 
people who are living with other people were going, oh, they're, off, they're, they're out of bounds. They're, they stole someone. Listen, this is their second marriage. And, and you know, she, she was in this uh, sex contest, and that's how she won her man. And we're like, she's off limits. And God goes, watch how I enter into her life. <laughs> and I just have a sense that God, are you with me at all? Like, like, this is my personal view, but I don't think God wrote Ecclesiastes because it's true. I don't think Ecclesiastes is true, most of it. I think he wrote, uh, see, Proverbs is, is what happens when you're the wisest man in the world and you have a great relationship with God. But Ecclesiastes is what happens when you're the wisest man in the world and you lose a relationship with God. How do most of those chapters end? end? It's all vanity. It's all vain. It doesn't matter. In fact, he says in that book, he says, the answer to all things is money. How many know oh, that's not true? But it feels true when you don't have a relationship with God. Are you following me? But God knows how to... <laughs> are you following me? I'm saying God wants to... <laughs> what happens when somebody who's wise doesn't know God? They write Ecclesiastes. And there's some truth in there, and there's some other stuff in there. And then God comes, and He goes... He makes the guy who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes look like the guy who wrote the book of Proverbs. And God wants to begin to enter into people's darkness. Are you, are you understanding where I'm coming from? And, I, and I, feel like, I feel like the Lord's going to launch us into darkness, and we're going to be like leaven in darkness. And I think where we're going, <laughs> no one's ever dared to go there before because they go, you're going to fall off the earth if you do that. You're going to get unclean. You're gonna, something bad's going to happen to you. <laughs> I wish I could tell you what's really going on. God never called us to be the protector of the law. He called us to be the extender of the kingdom. He never called us to be the guardian of the law. They did that for 4,000 years and it hasn't worked. I'm alright with having good laws. I'm just saying. That is not our main function. Our main function is not to protect the law. Our main function is to demonstrate the goodness of God. It's the kindness of God that keeps people, that invites people into the kingdom. <sighs> I just, uh, Jesus, Luke thirteen twenty. Jesus said, "What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid three pecks of flour." In, in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. I feel like this is the word of the Lord, like Bill was talking about this morning. You know, I, I'll put it in my language. Sometimes God's shouting some things and whispering others. It, it, the Holy Spirit emphasis. <clears throat> there are definitely scriptures that can tell us, get away from the world, stay separate, don't touch them. And how many of you know, sometimes when you're discipling people, you, they do need to be, some people just need to be separate for a season. We all know that. When you're discipling someone privately, you go, hey, here's four verses that say, you need to not have any relationship with the world because look what it's doing to you. But I think that the, the corporate word is the Lord's beginning to hide us like leaven in the world system. This is really interesting. Daniel chapter 1, uh, verse 7 the commander of the officials assigned new names to Daniel, and he signed them. As to Daniel, he assigned the name Belshazzar to, and I can't say to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but they're the other names. And this is interesting. Verse uh, 4, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 8 says, But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. What I'm getting at is this. Daniel, Daniel's name was changed 
by the king, so was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was not their names. I can't pronounce their real names. But the king gave the three boys and Daniel the name of his gods. Here's what we got. Daniel won't defile himself with his food. He's going to pray three times a day and open his windows towards Jerusalem, don't matter what the king says. But the king goes, hey, I want to call you Belshazzar. That's the name of my God. He's like, whatever. And get this, get this. Daniel 4, 9. Oh, Belshazzar, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, chief of the magicians, since I know that, this, that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the vision and the dream that I've seen in its interpretation. I want, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get you to feel something here. Daniel's got integrity. He won't violate his relationship with God. Got me? He's, I mean, incredible integrity. Like, he's willing to risk his life so he can eat vegetables. <laughs> That's what I think, too. But I still admire the guy, even though I don't agree. But he's named among the magicians. And he's taking on, the king calls him by the name of his God and names the other three boys by the names of his gods. They are not the prophetic counsel to Nebuchadnezzar. They're the magicians. I don't know if you're getting that or not. I mean, is it possible that there might be prophets who seep into the psychic network and start being part of the, you know, the, the police force uses psychics? I just wonder what happens when the prophets and prophetesses begin to settle into those places and they, be, and, and, and they go, oh, uh, let's see, we, we need a psychic. And we go, yeah, here's Johnny from Bethel Church over here is the psychic. And what I'm getting at is that, listen, it, listen, Daniel's not changed. But the king is viewing him through his NFL contract. And Daniel's okay with it, it seems. I realize this is not commentary, this is documentary. But he lets him do it. Language means a lot. Language can be a barrier. Do you remember when a hard drive was... A road with a lot of potholes. <laughs> that megabytes was a bad dog <laughs> attack. When RAM was a large animal or something that happened in an accident. And a website was something you viewed after the spider left. So some of the struggle is like, we'll fight over the language. And the Lord's all, no, where you're going, no one's ever gone before. Uh, the Magi in the, um, you know, that they followed the star. There's, there's, um, there's a lot of historians, um, I've been told this, I never read these things. These are, I have to believe people, other people. I can't wade through to get the nuggets. But there's historians who believe that the Magi were, dis were descendants or disciples uh, from ancient Babylon, from Daniel himself. 
and that when Daniel was a, a magician, that he actually began to disciple many of the magicians, and there was conversions, and the magi who were stargazers came out of that looking for the Christ. In other words, there was a movement among the psychics, if you will, that they kept the name, but they loved God. <laughs> Is that kind of cool? I believe the Lord's going to start giving us... Um, don't laugh because I haven't said anything. I know, when Bill pauses, you're like, that's amazing. When I pause, you guys are like, you know, you can get up some vitamins for that now. What do they call, like, member knots or remember always is some kind of, I can't even remember what the name of the vitamin is. I like the Lord. Would you shock? The Lord's going to begin to give us a ship. You know, the three ships that Christopher Columbus sailed on? The lady came up and told me what those three names mean. No, not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Dude, you're reading the wrong book. I know nothing about history either. Unless it's church history. I should know, but like I was, I'm really interested in history, but I also was interested in the girl who was in the history class when I was in high school, so I never learned anything about history. Just topography. So... Um, That was before Kathy, in case you were wondering. I feel like the Lord is going to give us wisdom to build three ships, so to speak. He's going to give us vehicles that will take us to a new land. I feel like the Lord is going to give us vehicles that will take us to a new land. And, uh, and I feel like the Lord's going to give us wisdom for a government that will take us to a new land. And I think that it's going to be, um, the next 10 years are going to be really exciting, exciting years. Exciting years. <laughs> Adventurous years. Some of you are settlers, and you're going to be very unsettled. And um, some of you are pioneers, and you're going to be like, oh, I was born for this. The book of Acts was never meant to be the final commentary on God's interaction with man. I was reading tonight, 1 John. John says this. He says, You have no need for anyone to teach you, for the, his anointing teaches you all things. Now, that's really odd. John's teaching them. That's in 1 John 2. In 2 John, it only has one chapter, the 10th verse, he says, if anyone doesn't receive our teaching, don't let him come into your house. <laughs> Detention. You have no need for anyone to teach you, for the Holy Spirit himself teaches you all things. If anyone doesn't receive our teaching, don't even let him enter your house. 
Which is it, both? But you know what? John's teaching them and he's telling them there's a lot more to learn than what's written. Oh, that was... <laughs> and now this gives people permission to go out and get weird books and go, here's the lost book of the Bible. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think we got the special glasses guy. He, that didn't work out too good for him. Or maybe he thought it did. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm just saying that the Lord is going to guide us into all truth. This is the foundation for all truth, but this is not all truth. All of the Bible is in God, but not all of God's in the Bible. There's six different birds, I think, named in the Bible. The owl is not mentioned. How many know that God created the owl? And Romans 1 says, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in what God made. So how many know the owl has something to say about God? But he's not in the book. But he's in God. So we're learning about the eagles and the dove and all the things that are written. But I have a sense that the Lord's going to teach us about the owl, about the peacock. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor that the Lord's going to take us where no one's ever gone before. People say that if you sail outside of this book, you're going to die. I think this book is a ship. It was never meant to be the ocean. It was meant to be the, the vessel. Some people think the book is the ocean. I think the book is the vessel. I don't know if you got that, but that was, that was Holy Spirit. I just got that right now. This book will give you direction for all of your life. Well, I don't know if it will give you direction for everything in your life, but if you stay in this ship, you'll get to where God wants you to be. It gives you, the, it gives you all that you need to have a relationship with Jesus. And He may take you someplace that isn't in the book. That was the Lord right there. And that's the children's conference. And that isn't in here, but it's in here. Why don't you stand up? This was going to stimulate a lot of emails. <laughs> oh. <laughs> You know, you can always take something like this the wrong way. And what's weird, what's weird, you know, what's, what happens is the weird people do. The weird people need somebody to stand up and give them permission to be totally weird, disconnected from the church, in some kind of, you know, heresy, some kind of cult, and they just got permission to do it. But those that live by the Spirit know that that's not at all what the Holy Spirit's saying to us. That is not at all what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. So Holy Spirit, we pray right now, and in praying for us as a family and as a tribe, the broader tribe that isn't in this room, Lord, I pray, 1 John 2, 
that you, Holy Spirit, would lead us and guide us into all truth. For you have the anointing, because the Holy One, you said, abides in us. And Lord, I pray that the Holy One that abides in us would begin to guide us and direct us. And Lord, that we would, that our, that our innocence, the simplicity that Eric prayed about this morning, the things that we've talked about for years and years, that those things would stay intact in the core of who we are. But Lord, as we go into these places that they've never seen believers before, they may identify us by different titles and different names. But Lord, let us stay innocent. Let, let us keep a knife to our throat, as Bill taught a couple of weeks ago. Let us not desire their delicacies, lest we be deceived. Lord, let us be pure in heart so that we become a light in dark places. Something that's shining, not something that once reflected an earlier day. And Lord, I thank you that that in the midst of bad circumstances, like Esther, like so many people in history, that you write documentaries and you say, this is where I met them, right here, right in the middle of their, of their problem, right in the middle of their mistake, right in the middle of their darkness, right in the middle of their light, right in the middle of their day. This is where I met them. Lord, may there be many books written about the people in this movement. Hundreds of years from now, may this movement redefine history. May it redefine history. You know, they say the revival was actually the thing that actually stopped slavery. They say Charles Finney's revivals actually ended slavery. Lord, may they look back to these days and say, it was the revival, it was the, it was the reformation that actually ended abortion. <laughs> that actually ended women trafficking. That actually ended cancer. Lord, may, may cures for diseases come out of prayer houses. May we be numbered among the psychics in a good way. Let me finish so no one gets it wrong. In a good way, may we enter into that world where they inquire of the spirit world. And may our chief of the spirit guides, may he guide us. And Lord, may we begin to identify crimes and missing children. With, And this is what it says about Daniel that the king found him ten times more accurate than all the other magicians. Lord, may they find our people ten times more accurate. And may the Nebuchadnezzars of the world we live in trace it back to Jesus Christ himself. And ten years from now, Lord, may it be said, get me a psychic that's a Christian. They're so much more accurate. Those people who love Jesus, get me those people on our team. They seem to be more accurate. They know more stuff. They get more revelation. 
Lord, I pray that in the name of Jesus. Let us break through. Let us learn the language of Babylon and break through the barriers that have kept us hanging out together. Interbreeding. And Lord, may we see a great revival that the prophets spoke of long ago where they said, book of Hebrews says, no longer will you say, know the Lord. Get this. For they shall all know the Lord. From the least to the greatest. We pray that over ourselves. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to... I think... Um, well, Eric, why don't you come up and... I feel like we should probably do a fire tunnel. Why don't you...